everyone. Welcome to your newest episode of the Cosmic Matrix podcast with your host, myself, Laura Matsu, and Bernhard Gunther. And in this episode, it's going to be a really in-depth episode, and we're going to go into the real causes of mental illness. So before we get into that, I just have a little announcement, and we are going to do a masterclass on evolutionary relationships. Uh, registration is going to be open next week, and it's going to be about how to use relationships as a path of awakening, and we're going to give you tools on how to do that. We're going to give demonstrations. We're going to talk about different spiritual uh, topics which are related to uh, using relationships as a path of evolution. So if you want to be notified make sure that you're on Bernhard's mailing list. So you would go to www.veiloverreality.com and you'll see a little pop-up to sign up for his newsletter and make sure you sign up because we're going to announce it next week. So yeah, so what we're going to cover in this podcast is pretty vast. We're going to begin in the first hour. We're going to talk about how mental illness pretty much, in our opinion, only has one diagnosis. We're going to talk about the DSM, a brief history of the DSM. We're going to talk about how personality disorders are actually adaptations, meaning adaptations to an, envir an environment that someone was raised in. We're going to talk about what depression is related to and how it's related to trauma. And we're also going to talk about how this collective loss of the relationship of the divine is also related to the epidemic of mental unwellness, I guess you could say, that we're having, and how to heal from mental illness. So we're going to just give some practical tips looking at aspects of your health, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. And in the second hour, we're going to talk about the history of psychiatry, and we're going to get more into the occult entity topic related to the mental illness. So we're going to talk about entity attachments, earthbound spirits, how that relates to mental illness. We're going to go into Dr. William Baldwin's work on this as well, as well as Jerry Marinsinski, um, and really just kind of talk about how the spiritual, like hidden dimension can be related to mental illness as well. But before we get into it, I just have to do a quick disclaimer. Bernhard and I are not medical professionals and we are not giving any medical advice on this podcast. So we're just going to speak from our own experience in hopes that we can, we can present a different view on mental illness than the consensus view. I'm sure some of this information may not be new to some of you, but for some of you who maybe are on psychiatric drugs or have been diagnosed with a mental illness, like, I just want you to know that, you know, we're not telling you to get off your medication. We're not telling you that it's all in your head or whatever. We're just presenting a different perspective to mental illness based on our own experiences struggling with it. So just a disclaimer, not medical advice. Just take this as information, knowledge. It's an opinion. It's personal opinion. And that's it. So, yeah, where should we begin? Well, let's start with the... The big news, which really, um, you know, was the inspiration for this podcast. Well, big news happened a few weeks ago, I would say, maybe a month ago. And um, it's about the depre depression serotonin myth uh, and chemical imbalance or linking depression to chemical imbalance in the brain, which has been basically the consensus view um, on, you know, uh, mainstream psychiatry, so to speak, that 
a mental illness, and in particular depression, is related to a chemical imbalance in the brain. Hence, you treat it with SSRIs or antidepressants. What does SSRI stand for again, by the way? Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Very good. <laughs> you know that very well. Um, however, um, there has been some research coming out, official research, a few weeks ago on various articles, uh, basically stating that the official science that depression is linked to a chemical imbalance in the brain has been officially debunked. And there's even a quote from an official uh, science paper uh, um, stating that depression is uh, not caused uh, by chemical imbalance in the brain, new study finds. And the direct quote from this study is, uh, just to basically summarize it in a nutshell, quote, despite the fact that the serotonin theory of depression has been so influential, no comprehensive review has yet synthesized the relevant evidence, which is huge. So basically, where is that from again? That's from uh, an official government uh, uh, paper. You linked to it actually. In oh, you, you, you it was from the study then. From the study, yeah, exactly. Got it. Yeah, because yeah. you made a little video, I think, on Instagram about uh, yes, this exactly. topic. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We can link to that. I'm going to link to that article in the uh, show notes of of this episode as well so you guys can check it out but basically it's been proving which i want to go later what jerry masinski talked about in podcast many years ago that there has been never ever uh, a scientific proof linking chemical imbalance to depression and now it's been <laughs> confirmed so to speak and we have assumed that for so long yeah right so that's what i want to start off that actually that's a huge step right that Officially, it's acknowledged that depression most likely does not link to any chemical imbalance. Hence, the question of antidepressants, antipsychotic, uh, antipsychotic drugs, and all of that. Well, no, but so you know, this is just related to SSRIs. Right. Like we, they, the this this the antipsychotics that they give them is based on also bunk science that hasn't ever been proven as well. Which is right. antipsychotics are usually more given to people with schizophrenia or even borderline sometimes. Um, sometimes they can give them people with, with depression as well. But like, you know, that the 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 science behind that is also bunk, basically. Right. Okay. All they, of it. They, we, they know, we know that. The, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean uh, it <laughs> It's, you know, I mean, there was, again, there was never really scientific proof for the connection of depression and chemical imbalance to begin with, but it was based on big pharma-sponsored pseudoscience. Why? Because just follow the money, as always, and question who really profits uh, in generally from SSRIs and other psychiatric drugs. You know, on that note, the pharmaceutical industry, a uh, little fact here, um, is making about $11.7 billion a year on the sale of anti of psychotropic drugs drugs basically and one out of six americans is on some kind of psychotropic That's drug i i guarantee you it's higher than that yeah i think it's higher because even i was reading a statistic the other day that like 15 percent of children in foster kid and in foster care under five were on an antipsychotic oh, wow. okay i think it's also increased especially as we talked on this podcast um, a few times over the past couple of years uh, with this matrix trauma installment program and, and uh, you know, basically psychological warfare, <laughs> military-style MKUltra program, you know, with all the lockdowns and gaslighting and, you know, basically traumatizing the whole population. More and more people got on these drugs and, you know, because of um, the mental breakdowns. 
Well, it's not just that. It's been happening for a while, you know. Like, I actually read that 50% of Americans were on some level of psychiatric drugs. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've been medicalizing human suffering for the past couple, few decades, whenever... When, when, did, when, did, when was the psychi- psychiatry, the DSM started? Uh, that started in 1952. Okay, exactly. So this is pretty young, you know. And personally, I've think it was a huge mistake and there's many reasons behind that. I don't that. think it was a mistake, wasn't it? No, I mean, intentionally. Yeah, yeah, intentionally. Okay, so in the eyes of the divine, there are no mistakes, yeah. but this was basically, when I say mistake, this did not help the problem. It actually made it worse yeah. and it actually made society worse. That's that's my that's my hypothesis. Yeah, it's profited <laughs> the, the, the pharmaceutical industry, you know? Yes. So of course... The, a big part of the pharmaceutical industry and psychiatry is the so-called DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. You know, many call, some people call it also the psychiatry's Bible, the Diagnostic Bible that nobody questions and people just um, read it and uh, or even people go and study psychiatry, become psychiatrists, they they take the information in without ever questioning where it's coming from. And it's really fascinating because, you know, a lot of these labels or mental illnesses that are um, described in the DSM are literally made up on, based on very unscientific methods. And people just observed, oh, we're going to call this that, we're going to call this bipolar, we're going to call this border, borderline personality. Yes. Many personality disorders, right? So just, I- people just make up. And uh, also then basically believing that any, for the most part, mental illness is also caused because of a chemical imbalance in the brain, which then can be helped via pharmaceutical drugs. So they made it all up and it was basically a group of psychiatrists who were basically hypothesizing about the personality patterns that they saw in their clients and they just just invented illnesses out of it, basically. So yes. and, and actually, I don't even think the scientific method itself can get at the mental illness on top of it because I see it as actually uh, has a spiritual dimension, you know? Um, But okay. So let me give a quote about this directly from the book uh, Cracked by James Davies. And this is a really good book. It talks about the history of psychiatry. The subtitle is called the unhappy truth about psychiatry. And basically, you know, he says, He gives this quote from Dr. Theodore Millen, who was part of the original DSM construction. And here's what he said about it. This is directly from someone who was on the original task force of the DSM. Mm -hmm. And he says, there was very little systematic research and much of the research that existed was, was really a hodgepodge, scattered, inconsistent and ambiguous. I think the majority of us recognize that a, that the amount of good, solid science upon which we were making our decisions was pretty modest. Um, so that's one quote. Mm-hmm. And then he says, once I read this quote to Spitzer, who was one of the main leaders on the task force, and and this and this guy James Davies, Davey asked whether he agreed with Milton's statement, and he says, after a short and uncomfortable silence, Spitzer responded in a way I didn't expect. So this is one Spitzer. Um, Uh, one of the main people behind the original DSM. And he says, well, it's true that for many, that for many of the disorders that were added, there wasn't a tremendous amount of research, 
And certainly there wasn't research on the particular way that we define these disorders. In the case of Millian's quote, which is a quote I just gave you, um, I think he is mainly referring to the personality disorders. But again, it is certainly true that the amount of research validating data on most psychiatric disorders is very limited indeed. And then the guy who's interviewing says, so you're saying... I asked, trying not to look shocked, that there was little research not only supporting your inclusion of new disorders, but also supporting how these disorders should be defined. And then Spitzer says, um, there are very few disorders whose definition was the result of specific research data, responded Spitzer. For borderline personality, there was some research that looked at the different ways of defining the disorder. And we chose that definition that seemed to be the most valid. But for the other categories, rarely could you say that there was research literature supporting the definition's validity. So basically, and he goes on later to say, yeah, we had very little in the way of data. So we were forced to rely on clinical consensus, which admittedly, in his own words, is a very poor way to do things. And he said, basically, like, and then the guy asked him, how was the consensus reached? And he says, we thrashed it out, basically. We had a three-hour argument. There would be 12 people sitting down at a table. Usually there was a chairperson. There was somebody taking notes. And at the end of each meeting, there would be a distribution of events. And at the next meeting, some would agree with the inclusion and others would continue arguing. And if people were divided, the matter would eventually be decided by a vote. And so this is like, literally, it was just 12 people in a room just having a discussion about how they could invent different mental illnesses based on what they saw in their practice. And I'm sure they were also kind of defining certain groups of personality adaptations and traits. I'm not saying that it was all nonsense, like these are people who are working with people who are mentally ill, but it's really important to understand there's no scientific basis yeah. for this. So it really goes, it confirms basically what I've talked about and Jeremy Sinskiewicz will talk about more his work uh, also in the second hour because he also um, ties into uh, mental illness to entity attachments and the real cause of schizophrenia and all of that I had him on my podcast but basically that the DSM which is the Bi Psychiatry's Bible of Mental Illness is literally a work of fiction where also under, and important to understand these uh, psychiatrists are materialists right so it's all about the brain so there's no spiritual aspect you know nothing even talking about trauma and all of that and they literally just made up uh, labels, as you said, based on very unscientific methods. Yeah. Um, now, interesting. Okay, another fact: also these these fabricated so-called mental orders, disorders continue to grow. So here's it's the DSM one, the first edition came out in 1952, and it listed 106 psychiatric disorders. And now, fast forward, DSM five came out, the most current one, 2013, and it lists. 297 disorders so yeah <laughs> that's like a um, increase of three times and they keep adding yes. more and more disorders even like all kinds of relief i even remember a few years ago some sort of disorder um like they have i, I should have looked it up but I, I forgot to do it kind of targeting truth seekers right if you believe in conspiracies there's a certain mental disorder you have oh, yeah. because you don't listen to authority and the consensus mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. they just keep up making up shit with my friends as they go along now yes. on top of it obviously since uh 52 1952 the pharmaceutical industry has um more and more influence into this diagnostic 
um, <laughs> way of, of, of adding personality disorders in the DSM as well, because the pharmaceutical industry is very powerful, lobbying, you know, people cashing in. Um, and I remember even, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's somewhat related working at an animal hospital, uh, because the animals, they give animals the same drugs they give humans just in lower doses and maybe, you know, it's, it's, it's very fascinating. They give them psychiatric drugs. They give them psychiatric drugs. And it was fascinating uh, to see that they were even given dogs um, Prozac. Yeah. You know, because of they're not, <laughs> because they seem sad or like not really active. So they give them, they assume that dogs are depressed, uh, have a depression and give them a Prozac. And Prozac is very interesting because that was probably the very first antidepressant drug that came on the market. <clears throat> Excuse me, and it was uh, first came on the market in 1988, and that's also when the drug company Ali Lilly, who um, produced Prozac and announced in 1988, first advanced the chemical imbalance theory. So yeah. that's when it really took a hold. Yeah. So can we go into the trauma piece about it? Because yes. I really want to talk about. Okay. So then if. You know, we're not denying the fact that people are mentally unwell. I see it all the time on social media, even in the world, you know. Um, we're not denying the fact that these there's, there isn't something happening in the collective psyche of most West, Western, Westernized people, which is pretty much the whole world at this point. But my personal belief about that is that all of these diagnoses have one diagnosis. Well... Okay, when you bring in the occult topic, I just want to say there's a caveat to this. But for most people who are experiencing personality disorders, it's there's one diagnosis and that's trauma, basically. It goes across the board. And I'm going to read a quote by Gabor Mate about this, where he really sums it up perfectly. And then I'm going to talk about how this is true, how I feel this is true. So he has a great quote and he says, all of these medical conditions originate in trauma. All the diagnoses that you deal with, depression, anxiety, ADHD, bipolar, even psychosis, are significantly rooted in trauma. They are manifestations of trauma. And therefore, the diagnoses don't explain anything. Now, the problem in the medical world is that we diagnose somebody and we think that that is an explanation. He's behaving that way because he's psychotic. She's behaving that way because she has ADHD. But nobody has ADHD. Nobody has psychosis. These are processes within the individual. It's not a thing you have. It's not like you acquire a bacterial infection and now you have pneumonia. This is a process that explains your life experience and it has meaning in every single case. The diagnoses never get at the meaning. What they do is what the, what the diagnoses do is they describe something. In other words, they describe the manifestations of something. For example, Take a diagnosis like borderline personality disorder. She's like that because she has BPD. No, she's not like that because she has BPD. BPD just describes her coping mechanism. BPD stands for borderline personality disorder. Yes, exactly. So what I'm saying to you that all diagnoses originate in coping mechanisms. So basically, uh, just to, in a nutshell, they mistake symptoms for causes. Exactly. And you want to look, instead of thinking what's wrong with you, you know, what's wrong with your brain, you just have a permanent issue with your brain. That's this pathologization of these processes. 
You want to ask what happened to the person that could have made them develop this coping mechanism. Yeah. The only thing I would object, and that's definitely, um, I agree with Gobamate, but there are also instances, and that's more the minority, which goes, you know, more into the occult topic, because sometimes these disorders can definitely relate more to irresponsible entity attachments, which we could talk later in the second hour, but trauma also serves as an entry point and then you know, um, kind of exactly. So it's still related the, uh, on some level, but they also, you know, but I also want to say, um, you know, from the call perspective, Shri Obindo talked about it, Rudolf Stein and his own work as well. There are also, uh, people born, uh, without a conscience and ties into genetic psychopaths and not necessarily related to okay. any childhood trauma, yes. but this is a, a small mi minority. Yeah. I just so want I want to make that, that a point because yeah. this is a very small minority, but we're going to cover it because that's been our work, you know, is yes. looking at the occult spiritual influence. One thing we're probably not going to have time to touch on this topic as well is that when you get into evolutionary astrology, there is mental, spiritual, and emotional, psychological trauma that can be re-imprinted from past lifetimes. So for example, right. if you were abandoned as a child in a past life, and then your parents kind of left you at your grandparents one day and you didn't know when they were going to come back, even though it's not you being totally abandoned by your family and you never see them again, that can re-imprint the past life trauma in this lifetime. Yes. So we want, like, I mean, you can, like, I personally, like, blow this whole thing that it's even happening in the brain out of the water. I don't think it's happening. I think also the soul can get traumatized as well. So, you know, my view goes, and, and similar to yours, even goes beyond Gabarmates, because yes. I think that there's dimensions, spiritual dimensions to trauma, soul fragmentation, even, you know, I think the soul can get traumatized as well through certain really intense life experiences and people can come in with that trauma as well. So yes. we're just going to look at it from the developmental trauma perspective, and then we can touch on the occult yeah. aspect in the second hour. Yeah, also I want to just point out, because we've touched on it in the second hour, but the reason also I want to be very clear in my work, I talk a lot about hyperdimensional realities, entities, the hyperdimensional manipulation of humanity, unseen forces and whatnot, finding good, the occult knowledge, the hidden knowledge, and other forces interfering with uh, the human evolution. But the reason why we really focus also now specifically on trauma work, shadow work, and all of that complex PTSD is so key. And also, I agree with you, past life trauma can be reactivated in the current life. But the reason you focus, because that's also most often the entry point for all other stuff coming in. And I've noticed in this work, people jump most often to this whole entity topic way too prematurely, not knowing their inner, their own mind, not, never really sincerely engaged in trauma work or shadow work and make all kinds of assumptions, but more yeah. on that in the second hour. Well, I'll speak to that piece. The reason why that's important is because trauma infamously will either put you in a state of hypervigilance, fight or flight, or even freeze, a state of disassociation. So if you're in that state, you're going to see all sorts of dangerous stuff everywhere all the time because that's how your nervous system is wired. So you can't even actually be in a grounded enough state to tell if it's a spiritual interference until you're actually regulated yourself is mm, what I'm trying point. to say. So it's like you have to work with the body and the nervous system that you have, get yourself into a safe and secure place yourself, and then you can work with it. But 
I mean, there's a reason that complex trauma is called complex because it is complicated <laughs> to heal. It's not like you just, okay, I'm just going to meditate and do some vagal nerve toning and I'm fine. It's literally a rewiring of the survival aptitations that your nervous system learned actually kept you safe. So there's a reason why people, you know, the processes in borderline personality and schizophrenia of manic depression, whatever you want to call it, all describe a coping mechanism that was an adaptation to some relational experience. That's my feeling about yeah. it. So, so, so going back to DSM and Gabamati's quote. So basically, saying just to summarize it, all these personality disorders and symptoms, yes. be it, uh, even borderline personality disorder, ADHD, anxiety, like whatever they name as a mental illness, has its its their symptoms has its roots in trauma, most often uh, originating. In childhood. Yes. And the DSM actually even rejected adding developmental trauma disorder to it because they even said themselves that the symptoms of de developmental trauma overlap too much with other personality disorders. <laughs> so in their own words, they actually said we can't add this because it's going to get rid of all the other definitions. So it's like, it interferes you know, with our work. <laughs> exactly. It interferes with us expanding our, you know. So I want to just give some quotes from develop Healing Developmental Trauma by Lawrence Heiler. Um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it. Can we just it. maybe just as, um, define developmental trauma? I'm going to do that. Yeah, oh, that's, yeah, yeah. I'm going to do that. Yeah, exactly, Perfect. exactly. So basically, CPTSD, which is complex PTSD, this is a quote from Healing Developmental Trauma, it's being used as a catch-all for both ongoing interpersonal trauma for children and adults and the impacts of childhood trauma on adults. So CPSD in particular focus on, like, affects three areas of life. Self-organization, meaning the way that you connect and relate to yourself, emotional regulation, self-concept and relationships. Whereas developmental trauma in particular is basically based on relational disruptions during childhood that affect the chi uh, child's sense of self. Complex trauma is an umbrella term that includes basically later relational disruptions to one's sense of self. So like, you know, the developmental trauma happens very young in your developmental years, basically. And then complex trauma would be ongoing trauma that can actually kind of uh, link up with that. So if you have developmental trauma, chances are you've also experienced complex trauma later on because your developmental trauma would most likely actually make you seek out situations that would create more trauma for you later on. And also, it's really important to understand that the field of complex trauma is basically related to attachment theory. So it's about how attachment relationships impact child development. So we want to look at that. And that's ongoing too, you know. So disorganized attachment, for example, is highly linked with BT BPD, for example. So attachment theory, complex PTSD are really highly interlinked, essentially. And so, you know, it was really a long time before they even put PTSD into the DSM itself. There was it was a long time before they even allowed that to go in, you know, because they even they the the mainstream medical model tended to deny trauma for a really long time. And if you look at the uh, child rearing practices, even in the fifties, like let the baby cry it out, you know, we had all of these kind of basically pathological ways of raising children based on the medicalization of birth, essentially. So, you know, it was a really big shift when they actually put 
PTSD into the DSM. And by the way, complex PTSD is, I don't, I don't believe is in the, in the DSM anymore. And then Judith Herman has a really good quote about this, you know, where she defines it. And she wrote this book, uh, this tra uh, trauma book, sorry, the name is uh, not in my mind right now, but she has this great quote where she says, the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder does not fit accurately enough in survivors of prolonged repeated trauma. The symptom picture is often far more complex. Survivors of abusing childhood develop characteristic personality changes, including deformations of relatedness and identity. In addition, they are particularly vulnerable to repeated harm, both self-inflicted and at the hands of others. The syndrome that follows upon prolonged repeated trauma needs its own name. I propose to call it complex post-traumatic stress. So complex post-traumatic stress is basically long-term exposure to relational and emotional trauma in which you didn't have any control to escape from for no self-agency, meaning your parents, basically. So when your parents are not meeting your needs and not attuned to or even worse or abused, you have a family who's a member who's addicted, who has a mental illness, the child actually tends to disconnect from themselves in order to adapt to the environment. So that's the first trauma that happens. Any moment where you were forced to disconnect from your own feelings, your own self, in order to adapt to an unhealthy environment, that is developmental trauma. Yeah, on that note, I would even argue or say, I've written about this before as well, that there is not just no such thing as mental illness. Nobody's mentally ill. These are coping mechanisms, trauma responses, symptoms, right? There's exactly. nothing wrong in your brain other than you know, and even like what you just mentioned, some of these trauma responses we have, even the, we, we talked about in previous podcasts, like the fight and flight, freeze and fawn, disassociating, or even other behaviors because of the uh, PTSD were very necessary at that moment of the trauma to protect ourselves. Exactly. So we need to understand there's nothing wrong with these reactions because they help us survive, yes. right? The fight and flight, the disassociating, it was not... Uh, we needed to escape and the head is associated. It was not safe to share our feelings, our emotions and whatnot, right? So these are valid psych reactions of the mind to disassociate, to protect ourselves on a psychological, emotional, even physical level. The only problem is with complex PTSD, it stays within and we then unconsciously have these reactions to even safe situations in the future. Yeah. And it becomes more embedded in the psyche. Ex well, but yeah. it's not a mental illness. No, no, no. Like it's like an it's like a survival-based personality adaptation that served you well in some environment. And keep in mind that it can happen beyond early childhood. It can be you have like a terrible relationship. But if you're attracted to terrible relationships, it's also related to developmental trauma. So they overlap a lot, you know. Yeah. But the issue is, is the focus on the symptoms and the behavior Behavior, it doesn't look at the underlying cause and why this happened. So there's a reason why anyone developed any negative self-concept, negative relationship, rela relationship traits. It all serves a purpose. But then later on, it's like this outdated program that keeps running, you know. So for example, you know, for people who have had, um, you know, loss of trust or uh, abusive childhoods or whatever, 
you know, they learn not to trust early on because of course, like they learn not to trust because the adults around them were not reliable or safe. But then later on, they will not trust anyone in life, even if that person has proven to be trustworthy because that adaptation is still running. And then, you know, not trusting yourself and not trusting life and living this perpetual fear. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And paranoia. Yeah. So uh, we really, so we really want to understand complex trauma so and we want to understand the adaptations you know and it's really important to understand PTSD so complex PTSD basically focuses on impairments on the ability to regulate your emotions so it's about dysregulation so you want to understand you know how you know, basically how triggered you get in everyday life, essentially. So you want to look at like how your nervous system gets activated in certain situations, how you tend to check out, how you tend to freeze. Also, you know, issues with self-regulation tends to lead with issues with eating, sleeping, sexuality, impulse control, how it shows up is depression, anxiety, numbing, pain, difficulty relating to the world, difficulty relating to, um, you know, uh, authorities or whatever. There's so many ways it shows up but basically it's a disconnection from the self and it's a disconnection from healthy attachment essentially so you know it's really important we have to first understand how did this person in front of us how did i adapt to this relational trauma what are the impacts of the adaptations on my nervous system on my disconnection from self on my disconnection from relationships and how actually the suffering underlying all of these adaptations is really a deep desire for connection. Okay, so that's kind of what the, the where the healing comes from. And just to kind of like riff a little bit, you know, so borderline borderline personality is basically highly related to disorganized attachment. I, I hate you, but don't leave me kind of thing. That's disorganized attachment. Manic depression, for example, is issues regulating emotions. And I can speak from personal experience. So I lived in an environment that was very emotionally chaotic, like either it was amazing or it was awful. And so I was later diagnosed with manic depression. And where did I learn to have such dysregulated emotions? I learned it from my early childhood environment. And then schizophrenia is actually extreme splitting, basically. So the psyche literally splits and enters into a different world. So we'll talk about that more in the second hour. But it's really important that we understand, basically, instead of what's wrong with you, what happened to you. And we want to look at how any symptoms that they diagnose as mental illnesses are basically survival strategies that we learn to deal with unresolved trauma. And people are really doing the best they can given the circumstances that they grew up in. So it really actually removes this pathologization and medicalization of mental illness. And instead, it looks at like what kind of personality adaptations does this person have? How could that help them survive early on? And how can we get them back into a safe and connected space within themselves and within their relationships? Yeah, you make a good point. I, I want to also, especially nowadays, these personality disorders are being thrown around. Even in the quote, truth moving, conscious movement, people like just use it to insult people. You know, even like Amber Heard, for example. I mean, this is a mainstream thing. She got Dr got diagnosed with a BPD, borderline personality disorder. She exhibits all the symptoms, probably yeah. has been lying all around. But she also exhibits this attachment um, issue, you know. Disorganized like, attachment. It's, it's so clear. And like yeah. it's all the signs point into that also these are symptoms based on trauma, right? Yes. But then people, you know, shadow project on her, you know, like, you know, it, it really like 
you know, insult her in, in many different ways. And that's, I'm not saying that people need to be held, not held accountable for whatever they did wrong and whatnot, but there's some deeper issue. And I can relate to that as well because I've been in a relationship many, many years ago with somebody who got diagnosed with BPD, right? But I can see underlying there was a lot of trauma she had in childhood early on yeah. that developed that personality. So the you know the problem we have right now with the DSM is that they pathologize these processes. And I understand there's also the need for the human mind to categorize, to label for yeah. language, right? So yeah. sometimes I'm using also like an NPD, narcissistic personality disorder or uh, borderline personality disorder, all these like you can use them, you know, in the terms of to like label. They're archetypes at this they point. They're almost <laughs> archetypes. But understanding there are um, they are coping mechanisms based on trauma for the most part. Yeah, which automatically should bring you to a more compassionate framework to your own. If you've been diagnosed with a mental illness, if you know someone with a mental illness, it doesn't mean that you don't make boundaries or you make excuses for their behavior, you know. I also think that there's been this whole wave of like people destigmatizing mental illness. But the issue with that is in the destigmatization, they've overly identified with the mental illness. So like I'm BPD, I'm this and this and this. And they literally take it as a badge of honor, you know. And so we have almost yeah. the opposite direction of people, you know, we've quote unquote destigmatized mental illness according to you know the consensus but then along with it we've made people overly identify with the mental illness and see it as a life sentence exactly the, the identification of the label is also the trap with itself or using it as a weapon you've seen many people even like they blame their partner like oh she's a bpd or he's a narcissist yes right the demonizing of the partner getting yourself in the victim consciousness and not like having compassion in that sense having compassion for the trauma, what's underlying it, yeah. right? Doesn't mean that you don't make boundaries. Doesn't mean that you don't, you know, just go along with it. But also then self-reflecting, how come, especially in a relationship, you were attracted to this person to begin with, or how did, why did you attract this person into your life uh, to begin with as well? Because a lot of relationships we engage in are based on unconscious attraction, based on unconscious trauma, a lot of trauma bonding. Yes, exactly. So let's talk a little bit particularly about depression and the because yeah. I think that's probably the most common thing. I think it's also personally it's part of the human condition. Is it okay we, we yes. move on to this? Yeah. Um so I want to first start by giving a definition about the depressive position which is from uh Melanie Klein. Okay, so she talks about an important stage in the child's development, which includes the depressive position. So the depressive position is basically a mental constellation that she defines as first experience in the first year of the child's life. And it's repeatedly revisited throughout childhood and adulthood. So it's central to this realization is when the child realizes that the mother is also is an object of love and an, also an object of hate. So it's this confluence of the thing that I love is also not, you know, the thing that I don't, that I hate, the thing that gives me anxiety creates basically this paradox within the child. And then that's used in different ways in, in later development, basically. So basically, uh, and now I'm quoting Mark Jones, who's actually uh, one of my mentors in psychosynthesis, where he talks about that the maturation of the adult 
also includes this depressive position and the ability to handle paradox. So any deeper human love has to include the depressive position. So this is when you realize that the person you love is also a source of pain for you. So it's almost like the acknowledgement of basic suffering in Buddhism. It means that you realize that you can't depend on being happy from someone else, basically, that people are not there to just to meet your narcissistic needs. So as soon as we see the world as all good or all bad, we're in this position of psychic splitting and we're not accepting the maturity of the depressive position. So basically, you know, and this is Mark Jones quote, he says to individuate, you actually have to accept the depressive position. So you have to accept your parents were not the best in the world. Maybe they could have been better, but they weren't. You have to accept that people are not all good or all bad, but often a little bit of both, and that no one will magically rescue you from your pain that life includes. So life includes suffering, it includes paradox, and it's hard. So this is a maturation process that depression represents. So accepting this depressive position and being mature with it is the point of depression. So there's implicit maturation associated with depression. There's a reason that Saturn in astrology represents depression and maturation. And it's about recognizing that no one's going to save me from this. Being human is hard. It's all on me. And there's pain in, in that. And that will liberate you from life. But accepting that depression as part of life is actually part of a healthy ego. Yeah, I can relate to that. So there's also, again, depression is part of life. It's actually a function of the psyche, so to speak, in the maturation process of the soul as well. The individuation process ties into maximum alienation, maximum, uh, what is the other one? Isolation. Isolation, yeah. right? Um, but I want to share this from my own experience because I can see it twofold because I was definitely dealing with severe depression, this despair and suicidal tendencies, especially in my early 20s, throughout my 20s, really. Um, that really also that, that depression actually was the catalyst that got me into the work I'm doing right now, questioning what's going on in the world. Who am I? Because I really had to figure myself out. Otherwise I would, I would, I would have died. That's really the voice that came into my mind. I was, you know, dealing with a lot of free states. I realized now that the depression I was dealing with was also a trauma response. It's a free state, right? A free state. Yes. Free That's free another state. piece that I, that, yeah, exactly. A depression is a free state, right? In a sense. Yeah, because you're 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 so frozen like you have to understand that underneath depression is anger. So you need to actually the depression is like almost like an a state of activation that's gone on so long that you're now frozen in yeah. this state of suppression. Because I can relate that because there've been phases when I was just laying in fetus position in bed just crying not, not having no energy, no motivation, no life force, nothing. I was yes, just exactly. also was loathing, self-loathing, right? Yes. Like really all poor me kind of thing. Yeah. So all of that. Now knowing what I know about my own history, going deeper into my own psyche and, and widening my perspective, a lot of it was a trauma response in the sense, right? Of missing need, certain developmental needs that were not met, you yeah. know, growing up and all of that, right? What age and, did it happen to you? Uh, the depression? Yeah. That was in my early 20s. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So up, do you up think to my it, Saturn return. <laughs> do you think it was actually also, can you see it being part of like maturing into adulthood too and having to accept the crappiness exactly. of so, life too? <laughs> exactly. So that's that's I came to realize. So in my whole process, I could see a partly trauma response, but also I realized that the depression, especially I was dealing with and many others maybe as well, even quote-unquote other psychological issues, people are being labeled with are in fact sometimes I see as a normal reaction 
to growing up in a society that's very much removed from nature and spirit. Exactly. You know, the, the quote came to mind, what really helped me in this process, and I've, I've mentioned this quote many times, but it had a profound effect in my life when I first came across it in the, in the 90s. Uh, it's by Krishnamurti, you know, and he's saying it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And that's what I was trying to do. I was comparing myself to society. I was trying to fit in, but it brought more depression. It didn't fit. It was like a contradiction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's where the um, depression came from, right? So I saw it almost now. I realized that, that depression in that sense is a healthy sign of a healthy spiritual immune system to reject the pathogen of culture and influences of a uh, society where pathologies have become normalized. Well, that's kind of like the Mark Jones, you know, to individuate, exactly. you have to have accepted the depressive position. And this is actually probably the main issue that I have with the, a lot of the people in the spiritual community, because, or maybe not the spiritual community I'm in, but the kind of like new age love and light crew, you know, because they don't accept the depressive position, like, oh, it's all love, it's all one, and whatever. It's like, no, life is hard sometimes. Life includes suffering. Like, I'm with the Buddhists on this, you know? If you accept that, actually, the easier life will get. But if you live in this state of psychological splitting where life is either all good or all bad, people are either good or all bad, you've not accepted the basic depression, yeah. the basic suffering of life, yeah. essentially. Yeah, exactly. And this process became also very clear to me the depression had nothing to do with a chemical imbalance in my brain. If I would have gone back then to a psychiatrist, they would have put me on some sort of SSRI and antidepressant. Yes. Right? Uh, but for me, depression came, it was, a, for the most part, it's like a cry or call from the soul or spirit begging for attention. Yeah. Right? That's really what, what I realized. And the only way out was in and through. So I also learned only on to allow myself. I mean, I had my phase of self-indulgence listening to very depressive music or, you know, Alice in Chains and But whatnot. how was that helping you? That, two, in two ways. It was helping me on, on some level. I could relate, you know, on an emotional level, especially music allowed me myself to feel those feelings. That's, that was I, a key yeah, point. Yeah, can I say something to that though? That's really important because in order to actually get out of the depression, you actually have to slowly pendulate between allowing yourself to feel the more intense feelings, including anger, including the grief, and you have to kind of, and the music actually helped you get out of the depression because it helped you get out of the free state through exactly. processing the emotions. Exactly. Well, thank you for sharing. And then also being a musician, expressing myself, playing in bands, drums, expressing that uh, creatively helped me a lot. Also dance. So that was my, uh, especially drumming, you know, to to really like process these emotions and listen. Music has a big effect on it. The other side of the coin, though, is I saw myself also sometimes. Especially, you know, that's the emo thing. I was never into emo, but more into like grunge. I was, you know, I grew up on Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, more heavier music as well, Metallica, Pantera. But I could bury myself emotionally. But I saw myself then also indulging in it and kind of getting stuck in it, right? Almost identifying more with that state. So you didn't. So can I just ask you, applying trauma theory, did you pendulate? Did you like just pendulate like into the bad feelings and not kind of pendulate into feelings of neutrality or relief? Because that would be the ideal trauma healing. So you would go into the intense death metal or, you know, the music to help you process the feelings, but then you would go out of it into either a state of neutral feeling or a state of neutrality. And that would help you process the emotions. That's, that's a good, very good question. I can see both. 
sometimes getting stuck in it and more indulging in it. Yeah, so you were pendulating. pendulating yeah, yeah. But then also helping to transmute it and I feel actually relieved and lighter. Yes. Like proce- like really processing it. Yes. But the key point what helped me in this process as well because a lot of the ba- bands are like then they died of drug overdoses, they killed themselves, you know, they kind of got stuck in all of that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but what helped me then was also doing the psychological work that, you know, my own child confronting that, but bringing in the spiritual aspect, mm-hmm. which is very key. Like that's what I want to address as well, because only the psychological process finding good, but you can always get stuck in childhood, you know, of digging, digging, digging in psychoanalysis, which can be a trap in itself. If you don't bring the spiritual aspect, not only aspiration to the divine, but to ask to your true self, the ultimate questions, who am I beyond this uh, personality. Well, that's the whole, I think, issue is that we have removed spirit, we have removed the sacred from part of the consensus reality because we are in this materialistic age. And that's actually what's causing a lot of this mental illness, I think. That's yeah. the underlying thing is if you remove what connects people to all of life then and, and their relationship with a higher power, then you actually remove the main reason why we're here, essentially, you know? Yeah, you know, on that note as well, even I can see it in you and being both together. Even to this day, I still have sometimes, I'm depressed here in little things, melancholic stuff comes up. It's the ascend and descent. You know, I'm not always like happy, love and light and like motivated. Sometimes I go down in depth into the cave, into the underworld myself. And I feel even what's happening in the world, it gets to me and all of that. But I've learned to transmute it, to sit with the beef with it and even uh, con you know, and get inspired by it creatively. Yeah. Right. That a lot of my work is based on, you know, pain and suffering to kind of find the solution to find my way out of it through these processes, through understanding, and kind of use it as a motivation in a sense to uh, embrace life more. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. So let's let me let's just talk about let you know, we're not gonna give people uh, answers on how to get off psychiatric drugs or whatever, but I'm just going to speak from my own experience, how I helped myself heal from major mental illness and trauma. And I'm still working on it now. I still have exaggerated startle responses that someone like sneaks up on me or something, you know, there's still leftover signs. So I just want people to know that healing trauma is a marathon. It's not a race. In fact, if you make it into a race, you're going to add another layer of trauma on top of your already agitated nervous system. So um, let's look at some pieces and then I want to hear how you related to this too. Okay, so first you really have to look at all aspects of your health. So this is going to begin with the physical. So if you were were on psychiatric drugs, other drugs, et cetera, you know, I know Kelly Brogan actually has a detox protocol from psychiatric drugs. People want to look into that as well. She has a whole program that she helps people taper off, you know, but regardless. So if you're wanting to, you have to get your body in shape, especially if you were using psychiatric drugs, like that's what I had to do. I had to detox. I was going hard every day. I was detoxing. I'm not even joking. You have to stay away from processed food. You have to stay away from seed oils. You have to get daily exercise. You have to sweat meditation. You know, all of the aspects of your physical health need to be, I think basically almost like pristine, you know, you don't want to go into like some weird paranoid orthorexia thing as well but you really got to clean up and detox your body. That's the first step. Um, Because actually I noticed a lot of people who have especially more severe mental illnesses, they have 
terrible diets as well, you know, and they're also probably attracted to these toxic foods because of toxicity in their body too. So do not discount the physical environment and your physical health. Even maybe look at your house. You know, a lot of people are dealing with mold in their houses these days and environmental toxins they're not even aware of, you know, so it's really good for even the healthy individual to really, you know, have a good diet, to detox regularly, looking at that aspect. And then emotional, you know, and and psychological, I'll just kind of group those together. Understand trauma, psychoeducate yourself in trauma, get a trauma therapist who you really like and feel a connection with. You know, ultimately healing from trauma should result in a good, so you'll know that you're kind of somewhat more healed from trauma is if you have a good self-concept and you're, and you're able to have secure relationships with other people. That's kind of the barometer. So it's not like a, endless thing, you know, but you want to have a good self-concept. Do I like myself? Do I have good self-esteem? And I able to feel connected to other people? Do I have secure attachment in my life? It's called earned secure attachment. So that's kind of the barometer, but you're going to have to really start out like really understanding your nervous system, understanding your adaptations, understanding what could have happened to you that created these adaptations, you know, and really just move away from making yourself to be wrong. And I'm a bad person, like any relational issue and ongoing pattern that you have, you learned from somewhere. So you want to really understand like, wow, interesting that I shut down whenever someone opens up to me, where could that be coming from? How could that I've learned, learned about that and almost like become really curious. And I do really recommend, you know, um, working with a therapist and a trauma, especially one, one who understands developmental trauma and trauma in general, who can help you understand how attachment, you know, your attachment patterns basically. And then there is a spiritual, you know, like meditation has been proven to shrink the amygdala, which is something that tends to enlarge as a result of trauma. So you want to figure out some mind body practice to just basically get you into a parasympathetic state, a calm and relaxed state. That's not a cure all. Like all of these need to happen at once, you know? And that's why actually I think that many people would rather just take a pill and many yes. people don't accept the depressive position. They're like, I just want someone to come in and fix it, you know? But the reward that you get out of doing it this the holistic way actually is that you just like it's like you literally feel like you have a superpower. Like I really feel that people who heal trauma in themselves holistically have a superpower because it's almost like they faced like a certain like death of the soul, you know, and they brought they basically did a soul retrieval on themselves, you know. But not to say that they didn't have support, but like it does give you this kind of psychological, emotional, spiritual rebirth when you heal from really complex trauma, you know. And so it, it it's really important that we understand it's not easy. It's a marathon, not a race. Find support systems that help you develop secure attachment, who understand attachment theory, who under tra understand trauma and really don't underestimate the importance of your health. Like it's so, so, so critical and key. I know a lot of people who are on very restrictive diets who are not, who actually start developing anxiety and mood disorders because of their diet. So you really wanna find a diet that makes you feel strong, calm, healthy, like really vital and vibrant. So those are just a few things. Yeah, basically you summarized what we also call, even we do this in our courses, uh, the fourfold approach of holistic integral self-work on all levels, physically, psychologically, mentally, and spiritually, right? It needs to happen on all levels. And the only way out is in and through, and you made a good point, 
it's also on a deep esoteric spiritual level lessons, you know, whatever we don't heal or learn, we will have to face at some point in a future life. And just suppress and avoiding it is not learning it, right? So we just, uh, you know, basically avoid the inevitable. Yeah. And also I have to say, which I'll go deep in the second hour now, you know, the pharmaceutical drugs have also uh, spiritual metaphysical repercussions on a soul, you know, detrimentally affects, that will can also affect the afterlife of future incarnations. So, and that also ties into the Mexican control system on the, on a more, the occult reason uh, why people are why they're pushing pharmaceuticals um, on on the population uh, in light of the matrix control system. So I want to dive deep into all of that in the second hour. Yeah, I just want to end this too. You know, for anyone who's listening, that I really truly believe that all mental illness is basically curable, even schizophrenia, which you know, people you know, the psychiatric industry is like just thinks is a mystery. So you know, to understand that the power is really in our hands and we are in this real paradigm shift of health, you know, and we really need to get out of this pathologization, this medicalization of mental illness and thinking it's just a chemical imbalance in the brain and we can't fix it. That's all wrong. Yeah, basically. even getting away from the idea that it's, a, like I mentioned earlier, that it's a mental illness. Yes, right. it's because a process. It's a process. And, you know, what is a, you know, I see a lot of, I mean, think Adyashanti said, in some way you know a lot of people they go along with the consensus or matrix you could from a spiritual perspective you could see them as mentally and spiritually ill <laughs> right yeah the uh, personality ego identification all of that so it's also what level you perceive it from yes so we can go deeper into that in the second hour and i'm also going to share my own experiences as well navigating the psychiatric and uh the psychiatric industry <laughs> industry exactly okay so again, for members, uh, you have access to the second hour. If you're not a member yet and would like to support our work, please go to my website, veilofreality.com, and sign up to the membership. You have access to all the second uh, hours of the podcast where we dive into a lot of more material which we cannot really share on the public um, uh, outlets for obvious reasons when you listen to them or check out the show notes as well if you're interested. And with that being said, see you all in the second hour. 